Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it isn't only the death toll, more than a million people around the world, a quarter of a million in the U.S. alone, but the emerging list of other harms to the lungs, heart, and brain from coronavirus that make a vaccine seem like the light at the end of a very dark tunnel. Whether our need would be so desperate had we taken strong, early societal measures is a different question. Whether we should imagine vaccines as coming like cavalry to save us from human impact-driven illness going forward, still another. There's enough to consider just looking at the infrastructure around vaccines, their efficient production and equitable distribution, as it is. Ravi Gupta is a physician and clinician scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. He wrote recently for Boston Review about the urgent need to reimagine our vaccine infrastructure. We'll talk to him about why. Also on the show, Yemenis are not going hungry. They are being starved. A U.N. official tweeted recently, calling on all involved to do everything to avert further catastrophe in the country, where 80 percent of people rely on humanitarian aid. It piqued little media interest, though the New York Times quoted the same official recently talking about the effect of coronavirus in worsening Yemen's crisis. You know what worsened the crisis before coronavirus? Donald Trump, whose bombs and raids and support for the bombs and raids of others have been killing Yemeni civilians, including children, since the month he took office, as a new report from the group Air Wars details. Yet somehow, in some corners, Trump is still portrayed as an anti-interventionist president. We'll talk about Trump's war on Yemen with The Intercept's Murtaza Hussein. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Headlines are hailing imminent coronavirus vaccines. We're told are safe, upwards of 90% effective, and ready to be sent for FDA approval within days. It's understandable to want to see the discovery of a vaccine as signaling victory over pandemic worries, but one global health official says it's more like building a base camp on Mount Everest. What happens next has to do with vaccine infrastructure, the systems in place for vaccines manufacture and distribution. And our next guest says that infrastructure is due for serious change. Ravi Gupta is a physician and clinician scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. His article, Our Vaccine Infrastructure Needs a Radical Overhaul, appeared recently in Boston Review. He joins us now by phone from Philadelphia. Welcome to Counterspin, Ravi Gupta. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's called a novel coronavirus, and there's much that is lamentably new about this pandemic and its many reverberations. But in your Boston Review piece, you do anchor what we're seeing now in some lessons from the past, specifically from the H1N1 virus. Maybe that's a place to start. What are some of the persistent problems you see in existing vaccine infrastructure such that we need to, as you say, reimagine it? I think that's a great place to start. You know, the last pandemic, as you say, was H1N1 in 2009. And it's sometimes easy to forget that a lot of the problems we faced then still exist today. 
we've made quite a bit of progress in certain areas, but as I mentioned in the article, there are plenty of changes that need to happen, one of which is manufacturing is going to be a huge issue, even if we have approved or authorized vaccines in the next few weeks or months. It depends on uh, private sector that doesn't take a proactive approach to preparing for surges. And so that is something that really makes it difficult to quickly produce enough vaccines so that it allows for both domestic and global access. And you point also to that private sector reliance. There's just been concentration, consolidation in in that industry so that there aren't as many people who are in a position to to produce. Yeah, with H1N1, you know, there were only three manufacturers left due to consolidation. And now there are a number of agreements and partnerships with new companies, but it still leaves us with not nearly enough doses and certainly not enough to reach, especially developing countries. And that's something that we really need to focus in on, especially because we're likely to face, as hard as it is to acknowledge, additional pandemics after this one. Well, you're transitioning there to the idea of of the global implications of this, and that is something maybe it's worth visiting some of the unfortunate history, frankly, from H1N1, which was kind of what people are seeing and worrying about now, a kind of you know, vaccine nationalism. Peter Maybarduk called it vaccine apartheid. You know, this is the concern is that wealthy countries will buy it up and and there won't be enough to go to places that sorely need it. Now, we have things that are supposed to mitigate against that, but is that global inequity a real concern? Unfortunately, I think it is. With H1N1, you know, there's this idea of vaccine nationalism where countries then, as well as now, wealthy countries, procured doses for themselves, and they bought these doses in advance of the vaccine even being authorized or before the manufacturing had even started. And they did so at the expense of other countries that can't necessarily pay for it. And with H1N1, the World Health Organization tried to procure commitments from wealthy countries to donate a certain percentage of their vaccine doses, but there were a lot of manufacturing problems with H1N1 vaccines. And H1N1 turned out to be more serious than countries were anticipating. And so they rescinded these commitments to donate vaccines to developing countries. And by the time that countries like the United States and Australia and Canada did end up donating vaccines to developing countries, it was too late. The H1N1 pandemic had come nearly to an end. And now we're seeing that with COVID, where a substantial proportion of COVID vaccines have already been purchased by the U.S. and European countries and other wealthy countries. And when you have multilateral organizations and international institutions like the World Health Organization that are trying to create a space for globally coordinated strategy, that's undermined when the doses have already been purchased by the wealthier countries. Right. You make the point in the piece that not to have a a global strategy that encompasses high-risk populations, it's not just morally wrong, but it it doesn't make sense in terms of both biology and economically. Yeah, there's obviously a moral dimension to this, but then it also doesn't make any biological or economic sense. And that's what I talk a little bit about in the article, as you say, because the pandemic accelerated so quickly because of the fact that we're so interconnected now, more so than we have ever been before, And to only vaccinate a certain 
segment of the global population means that we can't really get a handle on this virus as a whole. And the international trade that has been devastated because of the pandemic will continue to suffer if certain countries can't vaccinate their populations and be allow their citizens to be productive members of the economy. So it overall makes certainly no moral sense, but also no economic or biological sense. Well, let's bring that to the domestic level. We have federal health officials now saying that every state will have vaccines within 24 hours of an FDA green light. But the devil is in the details and really too big to be called details, really, when it comes to things like race and class disparities, in particular in the healthcare system in the United States. And so what thoughts do you have or concerns about equitable distribution within the U.S.? I think this is a huge issue. And people are rightly starting to pay more attention to it. So what I focus in on in the piece is this idea that we've had decades-long underfunding of state and local public health departments and just myopic funding cuts for pandemic preparedness. And this hampers coordinated access and leaves us ill-prepared to reach the very populations that are the most affected by this virus. And mainly these are Black communities, the Latinx communities, and Native American communities in our country. And these are the same communities that have suffered the most from COVID and historically have also been often the communities that have lower vaccination rates. And so what I try to argue for is this is something that we really need to pay attention to to help try to reach these communities for vaccination. And something else that I talk about in the article and something for us to consider is that large proportions of these communities are the ones that can't socially distance because they work in the service economy or they can't socially distance from home and work on their computers or take phone calls. And so they're the ones at the most risk of contracting the virus and the ones that we're most prepared to reach with the vaccine. Yeah, the piece talks about social vulnerability as an underlying principle for allocation. And I think uh, it's a concept people need to understand that equitable distribution can mean prioritized distribution. Well, another issue is trust, and that's a legitimate issue. And it's not just Tuskegee, but telling someone that you're coming up with medicine at warp speed is not necessarily a confidence booster. I certainly wanted to talk about the Boston Review piece, but I did want to give you an opportunity to briefly explain the concerns that you and Reshma Ramachandran point to in your recent New York Times op-ed about the 21st Century Cures Act. If you could just briefly take a moment and talk about, you know, how that fits here. Absolutely. So we wrote this piece specifically about remdesivir, which is a drug that was initially developed for Ebola. This was several years ago and was shown not to actually work for Ebola. And it's been repurposed for COVID-19 based on some studies that showed it worked for coronaviruses. But we argue that the FDA prematurely gave the drug approval because it's unclear if it's actually effective. And it's also quite expensive, especially because it's been developed with public dollars. And we contextualize this with the idea that there's been years of assault on FDA evidentiary standards. There's been an erosion of their ability to really ensure that new therapeutics, new vaccines are safe and effective. And that stems somewhat from the 21st Century Cures Act, which was legislation that was passed in 2016 under President Obama, which had a number of positive 
aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, it increased NIH funding and it helped address the opioid epidemic. But part of it was to exactly what I say, erode FDA standards based on these unfounded claims that the FDA has an approval process that's too slow. In fact, the FDA is among, if not the fastest approval agency in the world. And so we argue that this idea of remdesivir is just a crystallization of the continued erosion of FDA standards. And so we argue for a stronger FDA that not only ensures that therapeutics and vaccines are safe, but also effective. And that idea of using a rubric of emergency to say that a particular drug must be produced. There's a particular Philip there in in the law that you explain in the piece, which is that once one drug has gotten that access as being needed urgently, doesn't it kind of close out others that come behind it that might conceivably be more effective because they can't prove that they're necessary anymore? Yeah, that's a really good point. So there's two different aspects to this. One is this idea of an emergency use authorization, which is basically the ability of the FDA to authorize a new treatment or a vaccine without full evidence as to whether it does truly work. And that makes sense in a crisis like the one that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. But with remdesivir, what they did was they gave a full approval, and we think that was premature. And what you're pointing to is this idea that in the language that the FDA has put out for an emergency use authorization, they say that if an alternative treatment has been approved and is available, then additional treatments can't necessarily have an, an emergency use authorization. So I think that the language is something that precludes additional treatments from being authorized for the same indication. And in this case, it's for patients that are hospitalized with COVID. And so that's something that the FDA will need to address now that it's given a remdesivir full approval. Well, I'm going to read a quote now. But though the players have changed, a novel coronavirus, innovative vaccine technologies, newly formed international organizations, the game is in many other ways the same, constantly playing catch up, rewarding those with influence, unable to collectively share the fruits of human ingenuity. Nothing about this is immutable. That's from the Boston Review piece. Let's get to that part, please, about how this situation should be changed and can be changed. Yeah, so uh, I appreciate that. I think that, like we started out with at the beginning of this conversation, there are a number of things that are novel with where we are right now. It's an unprecedented pandemic. It's remarkable that we're even talking about a vaccine that should be distributed, but a lot is still the same. And I talk about this a little bit in the article near the end where a number of lawmakers, policymakers, politicians have started to appreciate the difficulty associated with vaccines and treatment distribution and allocation. There's a number of pieces of legislation that are stuck in Congress that relate to creating a public system of manufacturing medicines and vaccines, which is what we were talking about. And then also this idea that new therapeutics, new vaccines have this uh, monopoly protection that precludes competitors from being able to not only bring the price down, but also to be additional manufacturers for those same treatments and vaccines. And so these are pieces of legislation that are stuck in Congress, but we really need to advance not only, like I say, for this pandemic, but also for additional crises, additional pandemics that we're likely to face. We've been speaking with Ravi Gupta. You can find his article, Our Vaccine Infrastructure Needs a Radical Overhaul, online at bostonreview.net. Thank you so much, Ravi Gupta, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. 
corporate media never want reality to complicate a good storyline. Trump is still about the disgruntled white working class for elite reporters, even though he only gets majority favorable ratings among households making upwards of 100000 a year. Likewise, Trump is anti-interventionist, even as he directs violent interventions on multiple fronts. Faulting no one for being concerned about possible saber-rattlers in a Biden administration, a history in which Donald Trump is allowed to be labeled an exception to belligerent U.S. foreign policy, will be deeply flawed. A recent piece by our next guest encourages a shakeup of that characterization and its erasure of the horrors the Trump administration has brought to, for one, Yemen. Murtasa Hussein is a journalist at The Intercept. He joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Murtasa Hussein. Thank you for having me. Well, your piece began, as did the Trump presidency, with what the White House called a highly successful intelligence gathering raid on a Yemeni village, Al-Gail. I'd say remind us, but for many of us it may be the first time hearing what happened and what did it herald about Trump and Yemen? In the early months of the Trump presidency, right at the beginning of the Trump presidency, uh, the initial phase of it, there was a raid authorized on a Yemeni village uh, that had been, this plan had been previously mooted during the Obama era, but had not been carried forward. But when Trump came into office, uh, it was perceived at the time to execute it. And essentially, uh, special forces were deployed to the Yemeni village, and it turned out to be a massacre. Several dozen civilians were killed. One U.S. service member was also killed. And among the uh, civilian victims were several children, more than 10 children, including a young girl who was an American citizen, a Yemeni-American citizen, and who was the uh, daughter of Anwar al-Awlaki, the uh, former uh, preacher in the United States. A Muslim preacher who was killed under the Obama administration. So I think that what that raid signified very early was the fact that the worst of the Obama era counterterrorism practices were going to carry on into the Trump administration. And indeed, we have seen that over the past four years. So while Trump likes to characterize himself symbolically as being against the wars of the preceding Washington establishment. In practice, he's carried on those wars and even escalated and intensified them, as we've seen in Yemen. Well, The Intercept's Iona Craig said, I saw her on Democracy Now!, that she had subsequently heard from villagers, uh, you know, from that that village that was raided, and, and they were repeatedly targeted. It wasn't a matter of a single day. Months later, she said, many were living in tents on the mountainside because they were afraid to go back to their homes. But just to be clear, Trump didn't just not get out of something that he inherited. He actually made it worse, and that's what this Air Wars report illustrates. Exactly right. He has made all these topics worse. And to the extent that he's been non-interventionist, it's mostly that he has not intervened with the CIA or the Department of Defense doing what it wants to do. He has not uh, pushed back politically or stood on any principles. And it's very interesting. He's 
developed this reputation by just constantly portraying himself as somebody who's anti-war, and some small number of people have found it compelling, the reality has just not been the case. He's not been anti-war. He has let the uh, military establishment, the intelligence establishment, do everything it wants to do. It just so happens that the U.S. is so spent at the moment that there was not going to be a major war this period of time because uh, their resources are exhausted. But anything they wanted to do, they've done. Uh, Trump has been no impediment to that at all. Well, and even with regard to Yemen, there's been some pushback, you know, some calls to to pull U.S. support from that, that Saudi coalition. But Trump, in fact... You know, he 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 very proactively uh, vetoed that congressional measure. Yeah. Absolutely, he had because his political supporters did not want such a measure, and he is never one to do what's politically unpopular or politically difficult. He does the easiest thing at every given time, and then he goes and gives a speech and tweets about you know what an iconoclast he is, and that's what he's been living off of. And unfortunately, even this election, which he lost. Tens of millions of people found this narrative compelling, but the simple reality is it bears no connection to how he's actually governed. Well, one thing that is extremely Trumpian that you would have thought would have been picked up on in a big way is the fact that when asked about civilian casualties, Trump claimed that in strikes on Yemen, there had been zero, (laughs) zero civilian casualties. Yeah. Right, it's just a disregard and not caring about reality, essentially, which has been a hallmark of how he's governed more broadly. Yeah, America is greater than ever. There's no casualties. The economy is X, Y, and Z. Uh, unfortunately, it's not true, and it covers up the great tragedy in this case that there have been horrible casualties from these operations. Well, part of the confusion, it seems like, is some slipperiness around what constitutes war, you know? I mean, are uh, airstrikes or drone strikes or... What if you just bomb the harbor where food and medicine get in? You know, we read about sanctions as a way to avoid war, but they, they kill people just as dead, you know? I mean, do you think part of it is this, that we just don't have these clear ways to talk about U.S. actions causing death and suffering if it doesn't have this label of, of war put on it? Precisely. Sanctions is one thing you brought up. Under Trump, it's unprecedented sanctions targeting Iran. Uh, even during the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, Iranians have a hard time dealing with the pandemic anyway, just like the U.S. or any other country. Iran is far less wealthy than the U.S. And what they've done is they've made it almost impossible to deal effectively with the pandemic by very mercilessly sanctioning and ramping up sanctions during this period. And it's killing people. And historically, siege was considered an act of war. To undertake a siege against another foreign population is considered an act of war. And these sanctions are basically a form of siege against the civilian population to extort some sort of political goal from their leadership. In this case, I think their goal is to cause the collapse of the Iranian government, which, as we've seen, can just lead to total chaos and horror for the people who live in the country, even if they don't like the government themselves either. So they're killing people in huge numbers. Trump is not said a single word about any of this, and he's been the enabler of it and the supporter of it and anything. Uh, and, you know, it's, an, it's just a bad parody that he characterized himself as anti-war president. Simply not the case in any sense. Well, Biden, Joe Biden, suggested that he opposed the 
assault on Yemen and even that he opposed weapon sales to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia. Michelle Flournoy, who today we hear is likely going to be Biden's choice for secretary of defense, has said she supports weapon sales, but maybe they could be conditional and not be used in Yemen. It's quite unclear. And this is all before Biden starts to get pressure about being tough on Iran, you know, via Yemen. I just wonder, finally, do you have any sense of how or if things might change with regard to the U.S. and Yemen when the administration changes? Well, there was a lot of momentum during this campaign from progressives, specifically to put pressure uh, on foreign policy issues on the Democratic establishment. Because of the Bernie Sanders campaign, I think they're forced to listen a bit more. But now, of course, that leverage is sort of gone. And if you've seen some of the announcements of Biden's personnel, he's really drawn from you know, the establishment of the establishment for who he wants to advise him on foreign policy. So I think that it's really important that the pressure continues on this because I understand the sentiment that a lot of people express, but I think that there is still some opportunity to change course on this. Mm-hmm. I think there is a difference between the Biden and the Trump administration because we have four years of Trump and we know that he's completely insensible to any form of pressure and he does not even pretend to care. Whereas with Biden, they can't completely pretend not to care right. and they can't give an image of being insensible to any progressive pressure at all, because they need progressives to assemble the coalition. So uh, I think that there's an opportunity to push them on this. And uh, Michelle Flournoy, somebody mentioned, these are people who have wavered a bit, but mm-hmm. they have not been completely ironclad in their commitment to these, this policy push on Yemen. And there's opportunity there, perhaps, to push people as hard as you can to take the most equitable positions. Well, we've been speaking with journalist Murtasa Hussein. You can find his work, including Trump, the war president, leaves a trail of civilians dead in Yemen at theintercept.com. Murtasa Hussein, thank you for joining us this week on Counterspin. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.